God, we're thankful for the opportunity to continue to look at this office of elder, to think about it well. Um, we're thankful for um, such qualified men that you have appointed to lead your church in humility and godliness and wisdom. And we pray that this morning would be helpful toward that end, particularly as we look at reevaluating uh, our brother Stephen, uh, brother Stephen and Ben uh, for their role as elder and roles they have served faithfully and served so well for so many years. So bless our time this morning. Please pray that it would be fruitful in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, we left off last time with, we finished up the qualifications uh, for eldership. And then I made three background assumptions. Um, and just to very briefly run through those before I continue on, is that the, one, the first assumption is that these lists, and they do differ slightly, we talked about it last time, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, um, these are a sketch of necessary qualities, but not an exhaustive HD picture. Requirements not explicit, and that requirements should probably be in quotes, honestly, not explicitly listed shouldn't change the shape of the charcoal sketch, only fill it in. So for example, I said, well, where is it? It doesn't say a person should be a man of prayer. Wasn't say they should be available to serve in the role. It's like, yes, okay, fair enough. We do need to supply some of those things, but that's not what Paul was trying to do, give a, a, a completely exhaustive high definition account. Some requirements explicitly listed make situational assumptions, and we need to take that into account. For example, um, the husband of one wife assumes that the man is married. The fact that he keeps his children in submission assumes that they have kids. And certainly, uh, while this does seem to be the statistical norm, um, Certainly, we also have very good reason to believe that that is not something that would be uh, required to be an elder because it's not a mark of the maturity or quality of your life. Um, and it seems that what we would, should be looking for in such lists, uh, and we talked about this a little bit in the Titus 1 passage about the children being either believing or faithful, um, is something that could actually help us evaluate this man uh, for how he could shepherd the household of God. And so certainly, if a man is married, then he should be uh, faithful to his spouse, and if that man has children, that he should be uh, parenting them well, raising them well, keeping them in submission, not to be confused with somehow changing the DNA of their hearts, regenerating them, uh, anything like that. But there certainly is, and this is, I think, a pushback to some of the culture nowadays, that it obviously assumes a very, something short of determinism. If I do the right inputs as a parent, I will get these outputs. That's just false. Versus, it doesn't really matter what you do, your kids are just going to turn out the way they're going to turn out. Also false. So it assumes a formative role in the home, which anyone who, come on, we all know that, that you play a, probably the most influential people in your uh, children's lives. So that should, not be, uh, that should not be a huge surprise. And the idea is that the home is supposed to be a microcosm of, for how a man might step into the household of God and shepherd all right. And then the final one I gave was the difference between being qualified to be an elder and being a good fit for a particular eldership. Okay, So you might be at a particular church with a particular way of doing things or particular theology, and you might meet all of the qualifications to be an elder, uh, but you may not be a good fit for a particular eldership. Okay, Maybe your theology doesn't line up at all. In fact, I, I knew two guys. One was a... One was a fairly hardcore dispensationalist. One was a fairly hardcore amillennialist. It changed the way that they preach the entire Old Testament. And they said, listen, this just isn't going to work. They were going to plant a church together. 
And they said, the way we're going to plan on preaching through this thing and alternating back and forth, at least in their model, their philosophy of, of how they're going to do it, it just, it just wasn't going to work. They were too far apart on that issue. Um, you might wonder, should, they, should that have really caused such a divide at that point? But nevertheless, in some elderships, you're going to have a particular fit. And I mentioned my brother, um, Eric, uh, who is a free will Baptist pastor. Love the guy over there in my area of town. Uh, great guy, certainly qualified to be an elder. Just wouldn't be an elder in a Reformed Baptist Church in Nashville. Okay? He, and he wouldn't want to be. So it's not like it would be awkward for him. But uh, So the difference between being qualified to be an elder and being a good fit for a particular eldership. Any questions about those background assumptions before we move on here? All right, well, let me make one caveat about being an elder in spiritual maturity, particularly for men. Uh, if a lot of you know this from the business of the business world, wow, how about that? We planned that beforehand. That's not going to fall, is it? Hey, if we get a, if there's a second crash, we'll know what it is. Okay. Um, so I, I was, uh, let me just give my own example, and you can fill in the details from your own experience. I worked at Dell, most of you know, before I came here, and something horrible, horrible happens in sales environments. Here's what happens. You get someone who is a really, really good salesperson, or a really, really good developer or coder, or really, really good doing what they do, and... Um, they get really good, and then guess what happens? Because you're so good at this, we're going to promote you into management. It's like, wait a second. What? What? And unfortunately, they didn't create a track where you could just continue to go up as someone who was really good in sales. No, no, no. You had to get on a different track where all of a sudden managing people, because that was the career path, and it was a disaster. Some of the best salespeople were horrible people managers. Okay. This isn't a perfect analogy, but there are some churches, and I think some people that think of eldership, particularly because of the qualifications here, that if you're a man, um, your path to spiritual maturity is always headed towards eldership. And that's just not true. That's just not true. It may very well be true, uh, it likely is true, that uh, the elders in any particular local church are some of the most mature men in that church, um, but there could be very, very mature men who are not elders. And in fact, when I went, when I was up at seminary, we had churches filled, filled with people who were not elders because they just didn't have time to serve. They were teaching at the seminary who were super mature, godly men and scholars and this and that, but they just weren't elders or they didn't feel called to shepherd. Maybe you have someone who just is really, is a really holy, wise person. They just don't feel called to take responsibility for other people's lives in this particular way. And so it's a mistake to think that, now elders, I will say this, elders, uh, it's a particular calling and a role. It's not the generic advancement path that everyone is going towards, okay? Like the salesperson working up to, this is not it, okay? You can, you can be just as mature as any elder spiritually and not be an elder. And of course, that applies for women too. I know many women who are just as and more mature, just as and more mature than many pastors that I've met. So it's not like the elder is the crown or something of, of maturity, although elders should be a per particularly strong examples of these things. That is clear. They should be particularly strong examples of these things. That's not to be confused with 
Um, if you are truly seeking spiritual maturity as a man, then your end goal is an elder. That does not follow. Does that make sense? Okay. So, how does one become an elder? How does one become an elder? So, interestingly, there is no, like in Matthew 18, you have the landmark institution of like something like church discipline. Matthew 16, you might call the institution of the church or the keys of the kingdom are given to the apostles. Back in Genesis 9, you have what I would consider the mandate for civil government there, the Noahic covenant. There is no example of the standing up of the role of elder. Anywhere. It's not recorded in New Testament. It shows up in a passing comment in Acts chapter 11 when they're delivering this money to the elders. What? Of course, remember, there's a strong Jewish background of elders, so everyone would have understood most likely what was going on. But nevertheless, although we get qualifications, there's not like a, here's how you... You know, install an elder in your church, you know, and, you know, there's no smells and bells and no process and nothing like that. So what what are we left with? What are we left with? Well, in Acts 14, 23 and Titus 1, 5, um, we read that uh, Paul telling Titus and then Paul himself in Acts 14, 23 Paul appoints elders in the churches that he has planted on his first missionary journey, appoint. Uh, and then Titus 1.5, he tells Titus to appoint elders. Um, appoint elders there. And that is really the, the extent of it in terms of what we see in terms of process. But let me just call your attention to a few things up here. And we're going to skip over to Acts 6, 1-3, just a second which if you recall, is, is actually is not talking about elders, but we're going to do it for another reason. The examples we see of elders being appointed in the New Testament occur in cases of existing, yet very new churches that do not currently have elders. They are without pastors. Okay? Without pastors. Those are the ones that we see being freshly appointed. We do not have any examples of additional elders being appointed in well-established churches that already have elders. Nor do we have any explicit examples of church or organization birthed church churches planted with an elder or elders from day one. Okay, now someone might want to argue about Timothy in Ephesus. I would say Timothy's more of an apostolic delegate, and he's going to continue his traveling ministry with Paul. Um, but the idea is... When we see appointment here, this is like the the vanguard of churches being planted, not just in a, this city or that city, like at all, by the Apostle Paul. Okay, and so these are churches that are pastorless. Therefore, so what, how, how are we supposed to decide how to appoint elders? We, we, we already have elders in our church. So what is the what is the process supposed to look like to appoint new elders? Well, there's no apostles around. If anyone thinks they're apostle, you know, come see me afterwards. I'll help you with that. No, no apostles floating around. Um, so what do we do? Here's what I want to suggest. I said, in understanding and developing a process for appointing additional elders in existing elder-led churches, we must draw upon and synthesize, we need to put it all together, the New Testament information that we actually have, including lexical analysis, which is the word appoint, the role and responsibility of elders currently serving, and our understanding of the nature of the local church more generally. That's gonna, I'm going to have to park that one until a little bit further down in the series when we talk about congregationalism. But we really kind of have to put some different things together and do a bit of, okay, what seems the best fit relative to what we know? 
Open with me, if you have your copy of the scripture, to Acts chapter 6. This is the well-known so-called proto-deacon passage. Whether that's the case is debatable. But what you have is you have a case of Hellenistic widows being neglected in the daily portions. And the disciples say, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, the disciples say that uh, we're not going to step away from teaching In order to do this. And so I'm just going to read uh, 1 through 4 from Acts chapter 6. And then I'll say, what does this have to do with elders? Now on these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve. Tables, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Okay, so that's the situation, fairly straightforward. Um, Why are we looking at this? Well, because that word appoint, that word appoint right there, it's the same word that shows up in Acts 14.23 and Titus 1.5, appoint. So when we're looking at the word lexically, we're just analyzing the word, what, is, what exactly is it and what is it compatible with? Well, you'll notice here that they say to the disciples, the larger group of disciples, the apostles say to the, disciples, the larger disciples, um, the larger group of disciples, to pick out from among yourselves these people and then we will appoint them to this office. Right? So, for, so to, to risk a modern analogy, and I hope this is right, I think this is right. Um, the, the, the appointment that we see here, and I understand we're not talking about elders. I get it. I understand. We're talking about the word appoint. But the kind of appointment that we see here is more like how the president appoints Supreme Court justices and less like he appoints cabinet members. Cabinet member choosing this person. Supreme Court justice nominating this person, voted on, appointing them into the, into the seat. Okay? Does that make sense? So there is input. These, in this case, these people are bringing these people before the apostles and the apostles saying, these guys right here, these seven, all right, we are appointing you to be deacons. So it is not this, here's what we're going to go do. We're going to walk through the crowd and go, you, 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 amen, deacons. That, that, that there is, um, that they choose from among themselves. So there's quite a bit of, you might say, congregational participation in that little example here of the deacons. Okay, well, we're not talking about deacons. We're talking about elders. But when we're working with the same word, it's good to look at to see kind of uh, what is compatible with the concept there. Um, and, And so should it be this way for elders or should the elders just announce to the congregation who the next elders are going to be because they prayed about it and uh, you know, talk to someone. And um, what what we believe in practice is, yes, a hybrid. We have a hybrid practically here. That's how we have operated um, for four reasons. Number one, we understand the critical role and the authority of the congregation. More on that again later. Um, but we also understand the God-given responsibility of elders to shepherd the church, guard teaching, Uh, We understand 
the evaluative nature of these qualifications. In other words, there are things that you have to look at someone and make some kind of evaluation about. I'm going to talk about that more in just one second. And then there's the practical realities of just influence, the ability of a shep uh, elder to shepherd people. Um, and so let me just talk about the, the first two I take it are pretty straightforward, the importance and authority of the congregation, but also the God-given responsibility of elders. The evaluative nature of the qualifications. Um, does it seem likely that Paul didn't care what anyone in the communities thought of the churches that he went back and appointed elders, what they thought of these people? Does that seem likely that he just kind of was like, well, if, I mean, Paul cared if he had a good reputation among outsiders. Don't you think he probably cared if they had a good reputation among insiders? Huh. I mean, you would think so, right? Um, it, it seems that these men would have had to meet the qualifications that Paul himself laid down. So how was Paul to know that? Well, certainly he had his own discernment, but it's almost impossible to imagine him not um, asking other people if this kind of person was lined up with what could be an elder. Um, it, it, it's very difficult to understand in those communities. Remember, we had churches that already existed. They were just pastorless. Um, to just say, all right, I'm putting this person over you. I'm not going to, I don't really care what your opinion is of this person or this or that. It seems like it, it certainly stands to reason that Paul would have heavily considered um, what they thought about this person in that appointment process. The second is the practical realities of influence. Listen, an elder is not going to be able to shepherd a congregation of people who by and large don't want that person to shepherd them. Period, end of story. They can vote in a meeting or they can vote with their feet in their wallet. V votes always happen. Okay? They vote in a meeting, they can vote with their feet in their wallet or their heart sometimes. But, but the vote happens, okay? Um, and so if you have a, you know, say an elder board decides to run an, you know, I guess it changes. If you're in a church with 5,000 people, it's probably a little bit different, okay? I'm just, so this is, these are not wooden rules. But in a church like this, in a church, if a church in a 5,000 people, there's an elder appointed, you don't even know who they are, okay? Then they're probably going to never know you either. They might be appointed the elder of, I mean, but in a church like this, can you imagine an elder board running through an elder nominee, just pushing it out, and people are like, no, 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 we don't want this. Kind of like a Methodist model, where you just kind of circulate around maybe even. And here's your, here's your new pastor. And everyone's like, like, we don't even like that guy. Like, we don't trust that. We don't, like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to talk about my marriage with this dude. Well, what practical, how is that person going to be like a shepherd? That, might, that person might be moving, moving dials in the background of the church and might be a good strategist. But in terms of being a shepherd, you have to smell like sheep. And, um, and it's just very difficult to have to sit there uh, and, and, ha and have people try to be shepherded by someone who they just, maybe they don't care for, they don't trust, something like that. And so just the practical realities of influence um, when, we, when, we, when we put all these things together, the way it has generally worked is this, that at the uh, beginning of the year, what, around February, I believe it is, we will ask, and it doesn't have to just be then, but we generally specifically ask for, look out among you and see, is anyone already doing elder-like work in terms of shepherding people that you see that, not that you have some kind of fully vetted, you know, um, perspective on, but you think, hey, this person, per, is they're already doing kind of shepherd, shepherding things, 
uh, could they be a potential candidate? And we source for that. E email us, the elders at rbcnashville.org. We take those considerations. We talk about them. And if that person is a, seems to us to be a good candidate, we approach that person. We ask them if they aspire to this role. And we've had, we've had before people who, who might be good candidates, they just don't aspire to do it, which is fine. Which is fine. Like I don't, I don't aspire to to take the responsibility of other people's souls. I mean, you remember in Hebrews 13, it's heavy. It's like, yeah, I just, it, no, not the right season of life. I'm not available for the role. Okay, but but so it start it starts with us pushing it out for um, that we've called it a groundswell before. Um, but it could also probably start uh, on our side as well, and we could go talk to people who are relationally in the same relational pod as this person and be like, have you seen this person shepherding at all? Or Okay, no, they're just, they seem to be mature, but they're not really having an interest in walking alongside other people. Okay, so anyways, that all comes out in the mix. And one way or another, it, we focus down on a person or whatever the case may be. And then we, after talking with that person and talking with their spouse, they decide, yes, this is something that I might want to consider. Um, and then we present that to the congregation. Okay, we present that to the congregation. Um, and they are, have opportunity to talk with that person. They have the opportunity to voice um, concerns to that person, concerns to us. That happens over a period of weeks. Uh, then there is a vote, and that person is appointed into, provided the vote passes um, that, of the membership, of the voting membership. The person's appointed uh, into, that, into the role of elder. That's how we, so we, we try to take a hybrid. We try to take, again, the role of the congregation seriously, the role of elders to shepherd seriously and understand the practical realities of influence uh, and uh, just the idea that evaluating someone is a community project to see if these things are the case because everyone even in church this size we don't have a big church but everyone it's difficult unless someone is in your community group and you're just always with them you know it's hard to get more than kind of that a certain facet of the diamond everyone sees a little bit of this and that and people who are maybe up here more, maybe you get a little bit more of them in terms of their teaching or preaching or whatever. But the truth is evaluating someone like that for being elders of community project. So we try to take all those things together, and that's kind of the practice that we have stumbled on. Not to be confused with what we think is like the only biblical way to do it. Not to be confused with um, uh, if our church was 5,000 people, uh, how we might do it. But, but that's how we have seen, we think the best, we have found the best way to do that. Uh, here at RBC Nashville. Okay. Any questions about that process? Okay. Okay. So now definitely I told, I was telling Susan this, I was lamenting it this week. Um, per, the surpassing awkwardness of this slide. Um, the surpassing awkwardness. Um, so actually it's more awkward than the one I'm in. So anyways, all right, so here we go. So here, here we are. So I, I, I didn't really know where to put this, but every single, yeah, everything I was reading, just kind of trying to marinate in the uh, elder literature and how to teach this best included all of these. I was like, well, I mean, I better, at least I, I want to set it before, uh, our people. So here we go. This is just, I'm going to show you. Okay. Here, just, this, this is what the Bible says, not Tyler. Okay. So we ask you, brothers, to respect those, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work and be at peace among yourselves. Galatians 6.6, 6, let the one who has taught the word 
share all good things with the one who teaches. And then finally, the Hebrews 13, 17 passage, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account and let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So very briefly, um, let me just briefly comment on these things. Uh, uh, your pastors should be people that you can hold in high esteem and love. They should be. Um, a pastor's wife should feel that she is married to a highly esteemed, respectable man. And I understand in a society that's trying to flatten everyone out so no one feels shame and, and we, in, in comparison and all the rest, I understand how toxic it can be. But it seems to be very clear here that this is, that this is supposed to be a man who can be esteemed very highly, particularly because of how they approximate the qualities laid out in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. Um, so in conjunction with that, we have sharing all good things with the person who teaches the word. So, so particularly uh, providing for their material needs, which we're going to see again in 1 Timothy chapter 5, 17. But sharing with them because they are the ones benefiting from you. And let me just benefiting you by bringing you the word and hopefully bring it to you faithfully. Let me just say, everyone in here has been on a church search before or has been in an unhealthy church before. Uh, and if you've come here and you said, oh, I've appreciated the teaching and preaching um, that's what this, this is saying, okay, if, if you appreciate, right, if you appreciate the word being proclaimed in the way that it is, and you appreciate the leadership, whatever, can you share the, can you share your things? Can you share good things, um, with the one who teaches? I actually, speaking of that, I actually need someone to sew a button back on a shirt that I broke. So if someone could share their skill with me, I would love that. Come see me later. I don't, I can't sew. Uh, that would be a fantastic practical application, uh, of this. Okay. Um, and then finally, people should want to be shepherded by their elders in a way that doesn't exhaust them and lead to groaning and make their job unnecessarily difficult. Um, notice that last, um, oh, I apologize. My, my, this thing keeps shorting out. I thought I had all three up there. Look at the last sentence here in Hebrews 13, 17. So Hebrews 13, 17 B. Um, let them do this, that is to say the elders with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, that's, a, that's one of those verses that you read over and over again, and you're just like, okay. And you, then you stop and think about it, and you're like, wait, what does that mean? That would be no advantage to you. Um, and, the, and the commentators disagree, actually, on what precisely that means. But the, the best suggestion seems to be tied to the account that they are going to give. Um, so the idea is that the elders are going to give an account for how they shepherd people. This is high time. This is big time responsibility. So there's their list. And this is a little bit of a cartoon. Okay, I understand. But this uh, something like this. Here's the list of people that you have to give an account for. And you read down. Oh, yes, this person. They're so sweet. Oh, yes. Then this person. Oh, yes, they just love the Lord so much. Then they get to this person. It's like, I, th I think we got them across the finish line. But man, but man. And the idea is that is not going to be a benefit for you. And they, there isn't going to be, that is not going to be a favorable testimony uh, for you. It doesn't have anything to do with your salvation as such. It's not affecting your justification. But the idea is it's not going to, you're not going to get a good word. You're not going to, when the elders give an account for how, for, for you and their responsibility before you, it's not going to be a particularly advantageous 
account if every if they just every single time oh goodness gracious i don't want to have one more conversation with this person i know they're just going to blow up oh i know they're just going to shut down oh i know they're just going to accuse oh i just know they're and so the idea is let them do this with joy and not with groaning so three texts that say something about disposition towards elders um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about submission in just one second okay all right, so the one, one passage specifically that we have not talked about is 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 21. So let's read it together. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Okay? So, let's, make, let's just talk a couple things here. First, um, our, our friends in the Presbyterian Church make an actual very concrete distinction between teaching elders and ruling elders, okay? And it's based off this passage. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in teaching and um, preaching and teaching. And so to be a teaching elder uh, in the PCA, you have to have gone to seminary, okay? To be a ruling elder, you do not have to have gone to seminary. Two different kind of two different slots. Both elders, and in the PCA, because of how the, the governance is, the teaching elder is actually not a member of the church, a member of the presbytery. Okay? They are not a member of the local church. They, they're a member of the presbytery, which is a group of, essentially a group of elders. Okay? That might sound a little bit odd to you all, but that's how the... Uh, that's how the hierarchical nature going all the way up to the General Assembly, which is the top court of appeal there in the, in the PCA. That's how that works. So we do not have wooden distinctions between teaching and ruling. Obviously, there's a bit of a functional and pragmatic distinction. Unsurprisingly to anyone who's been here more than a month, Stephen and I do most of the public teaching and preaching. Okay, Stephen and I do most of the public teaching and preaching um, and Ben, by the way, on the occasion that he does teach, he does a really good job. He's fabulous. But remember, we talked about that the requirement for elder is not Caruso, is not proclamation. Okay, it is teaching. Um, and so Ben does a great job teaching in small groups and in counseling settings and all the rest. Uh, he's fantastic in our in our meetings. He's got a really great administrative mind. He's way, way, he's got this super, super soft heart, way softer than mine. And um, he's, he's a, truly a great example uh, to me, in those particular areas, he's always wanting to pray more. Just so it's encouraging to me. He's fantastic, but he would serve more in a ruling kind of a way, an administering kind of a way. And he does do the announcements, I understand. But he does a lot more than just the announcements right behind the scenes. And he doesn't serve so much in the public teaching, preaching kind of way that Stephen and I get up here and do. So we have that kind of distinction functionally, but but I don't to try to kind of stand up two different elders here that's actually two different kinds of elders, I think is pressing the text for a little bit more than what's there. Again, we're returning to that Galatians 6, 6, trying to provide for their material needs. The people who, who teach and preach, particularly full-time, 
Um, the, the double honor here uh, it, it is a reference, and of course the context makes it clear, to uh, trying to provide for their material needs um, and share all good things with those who teach the word with you. Paul takes a page out of Deuteronomy's requirement in some of the courtroom language of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, chapter 19, one's for the death penalty, one isn't, um, in terms of establishing a charge against an elder. Um, let me give three reasons for this, because again, I think in culture for a variety of reasons, this seems unfair to some people. This seems unfair. Um, you're telling me if it's my word against an elders that people are supposed to believe the elder? Yeah. If it's only your word, that is exactly what uh, it says uh, in terms of the bringing a charge against, not to be confused with an opinion or a preference, but a charge of sin. The context makes clear. Do not admit a charge. Okay? Do not consider that it is has actually happened against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses, again, dipping back into Deuteronomy, presumably. Let me give you three reasons for this. Um, the more public someone's presence, the easier target they are for accusations. Plain and simple. That has nothing to do with particularly for being a pastor. That's just the case, period. The more public presence they are, the easier target they are for action. They're easier for rumors to get started without people calling them out on it. It's easier for gossip circles to happen because they might not be in co direct contact with that person. They can talk and talk and talk and talk and talk, and that person will never even have an opportunity to confront them because they never know what's going on because they're very public, and this person just having private conversations. Okay. Number two, the more public someone's presence, it's easier to misunderstand or assume ill motives of them. Okay. The more public someone is the less they can qualify every single statement they make to make sure that the most aggrieved person doesn't possibly misunderstand what they are saying. Uh, and it is easy to say, well, I think what he was really trying to say was this. I think what we're really trying to say was this. Well, I think, I think that, that he said that, but he had probably been listening to this pastor. And all of a sudden, the more public someone is and the less they can qualify what they say because they're not in personal conversations and personal contact with you, the easier it is to misunderstand and assume ill motives. Yes, sir. Mm. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> good. Well, good for Mandy. Thank you, Mandy. Mandy. Mandy Five. All right. Great. So it's so so great example. Thank you for saying that, Doug. Um, and then finally, uh, as we've talked about, <clears throat> elders should have been vetted to be men of very high moral character. So hearing an accusation against an elder should make people say, him? That's hard to believe. That's hard to believe. And we're talking about the nature of the charge, not like him. Oh, he had a, he had a lustful thought one day. He had a prideful... It's like, that's not it. The kind of charges that we're talking about are, are different than that. Okay? Um, and so uh, the rebuke here is, is serious, but the, 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 what we're about to talk about. But the idea is there needs to be more than just one person coming and saying, well, I think this happened, making some accusation, because it would just be unsustainable. Uh, and Paul knows that, and so that's how he is, it is attempting to guard that elder role. And listen, let me just be, let me just be very clear. There's a lot of people uh, who, have, who have suffered at the hands of really bad leadership in churches, um, you have perhaps uh, 
been uh, manipulated. Uh, you have been the, the victim of very heavy-handed abuses of um, so-called elder authority, uh, and that would be an elder acting outside of their genuine jurisdiction if they're doing that. Um, and I'm so sorry for that. I really, really am. Really am. And I want to be very sensitive to that. And Paul wants to be sensitive to that with this kind of rebuke here. But at the same time, he is explicitly trying to guard the elder role from disgruntled people somehow just disqualifying an elder. Two or three witnesses, if people are coming together, no, he did this. No, he did this. No, he's continuing in this pattern. You had better take it seriously. Okay? Because the opposite is also true. Two or three witnesses and people still keep going, oh, those are just complainers. You, you're, that's a big problem. You have a, lot, you have a group of people saying that this elder is in sin. So what happens? As for those who persist in sin, there's a debate here because of this Greek word. Does this mean someone who is like in some kind of ongoing pattern of sin? Or does it mean that um, the person was found guilty of the charges? So they're not doing it. They just were, the, the people came with a charge and they did, it ended up being true. Was that that person who was persisting in sin? That's, the ESV has a very clear, that's obviously not how they think it, the word is supposed to be translated because of how they, uh, because of the word persist. Um, is it just an elder who got caught in sin of some kind or is it someone who's persisting? And for a couple of reasons, um, including the fact that it would be, uh, um, yeah, for a couple of reasons, actually, that I won't mention. I think the persist translation is the right understanding. Um, elders will no doubt sin. But what is behind this, this is assumption of this text, is that the way the elder is sinning in this passage, um, because he's not being removed from office, isn't something that would tank his matching the qualifications or meeting up the qualifications of elder in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. So there are some that would be, there would be some sins, just like if someone in the congregation were to do it, they might go a 1 Corinthians 5 case of like instant church discipline. There are some things where if you're an elder and you do, you have just surrendered your ministry. Okay? You embezzle funds for the church. Done. For a long, at least for a long season. Okay? Because no one, no one could affirm that, that you could faithfully steward, be a house, shepherd of the household of God, embezzling the money of, of tithe money. You have an affair as an elder. You're not a one-woman man. Done. So we're not talking about this right here, this exact thing. This, the idea seems to be, and most commentators agree, so an elder sins just like everyone else. Sorry to have to, if you thought I was a sinless person, which I guarantee you no one thought. Um, the, the, I hate the burst your bowl, but the idea is, so you have an elder who is sinning in some way, or, or let's just say has sinned, and then they're confronted by that, say by the other the elders in the, the uh, to use the Presbyterian word, session, but the group of elders of that local church, maybe some other people in the church who aren't elders, and that elder just continues to sin. Maybe it's a blind spot for that elder. Everyone's got blind spots. Maybe it's a stubborn prideful, whatever the case is, it says, here's what you're going to do. Um, once that charge has been established, two or three people are like, yeah, we, this has happened here. We've, we've, you know, we've looked at Matthew 18 and one person has gone and then a couple people have gone. And, and this person still continues, this elder still continues to do this. Um, that elder is to be rebuked in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Again, 
a little bit of comment. Who is the all? Is it all of the elders? Or is it all of the congregation? Who is the rest? She <coughs> made Again, for a couple of reasons that I won't waste, I think, waste our time on uh, uh, in this particular moment. It seems best to understand it as to rebuke them in the presence of all, meaning all of the congregation, and so that the rest of them, the elders, stand in fear. This is supposed to be a warning. In our eldership, in this eldership, it's a message to the church, and it's a message to other elders. This is not an eldership where you can hide sin and get away with it behind a title. Not going to happen. This isn't like a Supreme Court member who gets voted in for life and they can just, you know, mail it in and they can backslide and they're they're in. The idea is you, when you're you're continued continue being held to this higher standard. In fact, I heard a pastor the other day say the hardest thing about being an elder is living a life that people hold you to a higher standard and they're willing to hold themselves and being okay with it your whole ministry. Okay, I mean. That's what I mean, and I thought, well, that's kind of what you signed up for. But maybe that is hard, but that seems to be the case. And so the idea is if you go to an elder and this elder continues in sin, they are to be publicly rebuked in front of the congregation. Elders are not above the law of God. And when you don't do this well, that's what it makes it look like. Well, we're gonna hide, we're gonna hide it, we're gonna give them a pass because they're now they're uh, doing what they call in the leadership literature. They're on legacy leadership now. It means you're kind of like doing ministry based off a past career. Now you're kind of coasting legacy level of leadership. You don't have to do anything. No, not the case. You need to continue to walk in holiness, rebuke so that the other elders, it seems, stand root in the presence of all of the congregation so that the rest of the elders, not that one man, but those who have gone to him may stand in fear. Okay, And that is that healthy sense of shame, by the way. That's that healthy sense of cleansing shame that you also see in, in uh, church discipline. Okay? Any questions? Oh, oh, finally, finally, the last piece here. Do not prejudge. That means particularly if you're in a congregation and you hear something about something that might have happened, no jumping to conclusions here. We're not jumping to conclusions. Okay? We're not acting with partiality. We're not preferring one story or another. I'm not going to say, oh, I don't really even care for this elder, so what they said is probably true. That's not how the truth works. Okay, um, your allegiance should be to the truth and you should cling to the truth only when you have good reason to believe that's actually what it is. OK, so do not be partial one way or another. OK, don't be partial towards the softer interpretation or the harder interpretation. Don't be partial to what you think is nicer or what you what seems to you to be meaner. Don't be partial to the this person who seemed to might have been victimized in this way or this person who might have been. Where is the truth? That's what you need to be partial to. And, per, and many times you're not in a situation, you're not in a great per, uh, position to figure that out. Other people are going to be in a position to do so better than you. Okay. He says, follow these rules. He says, I'm charging you before God without prejudging and doing nothing from partiality. Um, okay, so in the last two minutes here, let me just say this. What is submission? Just right out, submission is this, to act in accordance with, to trustfully follow, okay? Um, and then that word, pytho and hypico, is what's translated 
uh, obey slash submit in the New Testament. And that is, and I think that one of the reasons that submission gets a bad rap, and we talked about this uh, in First Peter, is that uh, people mistake what submission or obedience is for a particular form, what it looks like in a particular relationship, and they usually go to like a parent-child relationship. Wives submit to husbands. You mean like, you know, you might say to your child, hey, no, hey, listen, I need you to obey. First time, every time, you know, happy heart. It's like, oh, wait, my, my husband's supposed to talk to me like that? Like, no, 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 no. That's not the core of what submission is. That, that, that's, what, that's what engendering obedience looks like and maybe in a particular, a particular relationship. But I hope that everyone's had the benefit of working under, for example, a great manager or supervisor somewhere in life. Um, and most people who have done that don't testify that oh, it was such an oppressive experience to have such a, to follow such a great leader, right? That's still obedience. I mean, at the end of the day, when the dust settles and there's discussion and there's feedback and the leader says, all right, I understand we can't make everyone happy, but we're going to move forward in this direction. And you say, okay, and you come out of that meeting, which is what we're going to do. Um, most people don't say, oh, that's super oppressive, so there's ways that you can try to press down submission that is oppressive and ways that aren't. Uh, and I'm going to make two qualifiers and one clarifying distinction next time about submission in particular to guard it against a misunderstanding. But I'm going to close with this point. Because elders have been given the responsibility to promote and protect biblical teaching within their local church, individuals should not seek to do it for them out of a sense of either one, superior discernment, or functional submission to different elders, many of whom they've never met, like their favorite podcast preacher. Both result in individuals serving as self-appointed theological policemen in the church who, regardless of how they would phrase it, stand over the elders in theological judgment rather than humbly listening and learning with a teachable spirit, even when they happen to privately disagree with a piece of interpretation or a theological position. So here's sometimes it happens. People come into churches, they join a church, they're under an eldership, but guess who really teaches them? They're that pastor that they've never met in California or Minnesota or Washington, D.C. or wherever, um, what's his name is now? New York City. Um, and so, and what happens is, are my pastors teaching the right thing? Hmm, I don't know. Let me go check. Let me pull out my phone and check what this person says about that. Oh, no, John MacArthur had a different interpretation. Elders are off. Okay? Yeah, it's funny until you get the email. And then you're like, okay. Well, do you want to open the, do you want to open the text together and walk through this? No, no, because they don't know how to do that. We just know that this is what this pastor said, this elder said. And so they end up, what they end up doing is, you know, nit, they can nitpick a teaching, nitpick a sermon. And, and I'm not saying that you should always agree with every interpretation and position that your elder told. You all don't agree with me, I'm sure, on, on, certain, on certain positions that I hold or maybe certain interpretations. There's a private disagreement. But I'm talking about someone who functionally sits in theological judgment over their elders and is always judging whether or not they're right or wrong based off listening in to, for example, other pastors that really are the ones who teach and craft their mind, not their own pastors. Okay, uh, there's 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 some more things you could say about that, especially if you end up in a church with really bad teaching. I can understand how that's a, a much a larger challenge. But I do want to make that point because we are in a social media, Twitter podcast centered universe now. And uh, this is becoming more and more of a problem, particularly with pastors 
um, uh, that, that I talk to who have people coming in their church and they got people listening to Mo what's going on up in Moscow, what's going over, the pastor out of D.C., pastor out of California, all these voices, they come in and say, okay, does this church measure up? In every sermon, what does Doug say about this one? It's like, we don't care. I don't care what Doug thinks about this one. We're going to preach the word. We don't care what John thinks about this one. Okay? Okay. We, we, we care about, I had a pastor in the seminary say, we care more about John the Baptist than John the Piper. Okay? Okay. We have a deep appreciation for Dr. Piper, but he is, he is but a man. So, all right, apologize for going a couple, of second, a couple minutes over. I wanted to get that last point out. Next time we'll come back, we'll make a couple qualifiers. We're going to wrap this up and move into congregationalism. Okay, let's pray. God, again, we're thankful for the opportunity to consider these things. We pray that it would be a boon to our church to better understand these roles um, and why you have instituted them, how you have done so. We ask your blessing on our worship service.